With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Monergy Life. This is your host, Robert Fisher. I have the great pleasure of welcoming Maxie Cohn tonight uh, as our special guest. Maxie is a video artist, photographer, and independent filmmaker. Her works have been exhibited and are in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, and the Israeli Museum of Art. Her video installations, video works, and photography have also been shown at the Whitney Museum of American Art, the International Center of Photography, the New Museum in New York, the Jewish Museum, and the Queens Museum in New York City. Um, Maxie has directed and produced the movie Joe and Maxie, an award-winning, theatrically-released feature-length documentary about her relationship with her father. And as I understand, and Maxie will confirm when she calls in, a sequel to Joe and Maxie is in the works. Is that you, Maxie? It is. I'm sorry I've arrived, I think, a minute late. Well, I didn't even get through introducing you to the audience because your accolades are so long and, and impressive. Well, but, thank you. But I'm almost there, and I'm so glad you were able to join us. I was talking about the possible sequel to Joe and Maxie when you called in. Do you want to, um, <clears throat> without giving too much away, do you want to give us a little information about that? Can we expect that at any time soon? Well, I don't know how soon it can be expected, but um, uh, I've been all these years later. I, I made Joe and Maxie when I was 23 about my relationship with my father, and now this is kind of the sons of Joe uh, and, and and Maxie myself. My brother is um, building what might be the first offshore wind farm in this hemisphere off of Atlantic City, and uh and the, my family is engaged in much drama. Um, so I've been shooting the last couple of years as that's been going on. I see. So it's, it's a, well, a, and it's a, actually not only is it a very intimate, it is quite an intimate story on the one hand, but on the other hand it involves kind of very quintessential issues that we're all dealing with, what we can't afford to do, the Chinese can, but will we let the Chinese do it, you know, all, some quite a number of international issues that deal with really what's the future of our country. Right, and uh, of course, uh, 
those are the kind of issues that we see in the headlines every day. Um, getting back to you, though, since since you are the guest of Monetary Life tonight, and by the way, welcome and thanks for joining us. Um, <laughs> uh, could you tell us how you first got involved in photography and filmmaking? Well, I uh, let's see. I always wanted to be an artist, and um, so I really started painting at a very young age, and. Uh, I remember having an argument with my mother when I was around 13 or 14 that I wanted to go to art school, and she said, we have to make a living. My uh, my argument was, well, Picasso didn't come out of the womb with a paintbrush in his hand. How do you know um, that I won't make a living? So um, I decided that I would go to film school and so that I could animate painting. But basically what really happened was I always wanted to make a film about my father because I, I, I wanted to be him and I wanted to understand him. And so that gave me motivation to do that, um, to go to film school. Right. And, By the and, way, uh, who, who who won that argument with your mother when you were... <laughs> Oh, she won. I did. I went to school to. Well, the irony is, is that she won because I didn't go to an art school. I went to learn a trade, you know, so to speak. I went to film school, but right. in fact, what was so ironic about it is, is that I, I've not been able to not be an artist. So, I mean, even though I spent a number of years in in Hollywood and I've done stuff, you know, I've done, I've, I've made. Uh, films and for television and developed TV series. The irony is, is that um, I've always been, I think, a conceptualist and an artist at heart. And when um, in my early twenties I was doing video and showing at the Museum of Modern Art and the Whitney places, you know, in, in museums, and if I was as well-known as a painter as I was a video artist, I would have been making, you know, I could have been making conceivably real money. Maybe, you know, artists were making six figures a year at that time that were exhibiting some. Mm -hmm. But not even the most famous video artist, Nam June Paik, was making any money at that time. So, so I thought that was sort of quite ironic because being an artist using video or film is just even more expensive than making a a watercolor or an oil painting. So, uh, but it also took a lot of time and energy, time really, to make, uh, to raise money to do feature-length films, independent films. And so um, the man who shot and co-directed Joan Maxey with me, Joel Gold, gave me a camera in those early days. And... Um, so I started shooting, which was hugely satisfying because, uh, you know, it, 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 the camera really became an extension of me, and it was a way to really discover in some way who I am by where my attention went, what I framed. Was that the first film that you had directed as well? Yes. No, I had done I had done a number of videos earlier than that I when I graduated college i went to um i i spent uh i i went directly to cape may new jersey where i did a tv series so i wanted to see if people had access to the airwaves if it would change the quality of their life and this was the the kind of the beginning of the 
video revolution or the beginning of guerrilla television. And so I did a weekly workshop in Cape May, New Jersey, which at the time was being destroyed by the city fathers who were in the construction business. What do you and, mean it was being destroyed? Um, well, no, the town well, was being I don't, destroyed. I don't know if you've have you ever been there. Have you ever been to? Cape I have May? not. No, I have not been oh, there. Oh well, it's it, well, it, it was a beautiful Victorian town that that the presidents would come visit for years. It was sort of equi- it's equidistant from or almost equidistant from Washington, Philadelphia, and New York, mm-hmm. and. Um, the city fathers were in the contracting business, so they were knocking down this beautiful Victoria, Victoriana and making these ugly buildings and um, ugly hotels. And as a result of people really speaking out by filming their, you know, the black people in town who were on one side of the tracks came to a weekly workshop that I was offering to anybody to make TV, they... Um, made uh, videotapes of the conditions that they were living in. I would put them out on the air. The mayor would call me and say, what are you doing? And I'd say, you want to meet me in the parking lot at the supermarket and (laughs) make a response? I mean, it was a town of about 5,000 people. But as a result, um, the black community did not sell their vote at the bar. A Democratic mayor got elected for the first time in 100 years. The city became one of four landmark towns in the whole country. And wow. it changed forever the economics, uh, the culture, the the economics of this town forever. It's a beautiful, beautiful town, uh, Cape May. You could, you know, it, it's all Victoriana. It's quite extraordinary, right on the ocean at the southern tip of New Jersey. Right. Um, yeah, I've heard of it. I've, I've not had the pleasure of, of going there yet. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you wanted to be like your dad, like Joe. Tell us why. What was so fascinating about your father? Well, he just really did whatever he wanted, and he was in some way kind of visionary. He, um, I mean, he was a very working-class kind of guy, and grew up on a chicken farm and decided that he was going to invent, like, the first electric or diesel car or truck or something but but he he started a fish business in Cape May that's how I got to Cape May and um he was kind of a transportation freak he just was sort of like one of these guys from the um a larger than life pioneering spirit and did whatever he wanted to do whatever vision he had he followed through didn't matter if it kind of worked out financially or or or, or made any sense and that spirit that he had, that that sense of entitlement that he could just do it, um, was very appealing to me. As opposed to a mother who said, "No, you can't go to art school. You know, you know, you can't do what you want." So I thought, well, between the two, I preferred that model. Right. That must. And have I wanted caused... to understand how did he get to how did he get away with it? Like how did he get to do what he wanted? Well, how did he get away with it? What what's your theory on that? I think I think that's I think it takes confidence and courage and a sense of belief in yourself and you know, you have to have boundaries and not be um uh convinced by pessimists or you know, even when I made this film about my father at the time, people everybody thought I was totally crazy and out of my mind. Nobody had Why? made a film that in 
Well, because it was first of all, nobody had ever made a film before that that was that was that intimate between a father and a daughter. My father was a nobody, you know. It's not like he was a movie star uh, or you know a famous scientist or anything like that. Um, I was doing it in a way that movies were not made at the time. It was a documentary, but it was totally verite. So. One of my favorite compliments was uh, when it was showed at a film festival, a man asked me who played my father. So it was so <laughs> real. He, it was so real, he thought it was fiction. So it right. was a, it was considered groundbreaking in its form and and in it, the you know its intimacy and in its content, and um, and in a way, I suppose I did this film as a way to try to get to to know my father. I mean, I, I mean that's why I made it. I wanted to. Re- I, I I thought it was only going to be about him when I started. I never thought that it would be about my relationship to him. But it, it was inevitable. It was it was really inevitable. Um, so, with, with a personality such as you're describing, uh, uh, such a, he seems almost larger than life in the way you're describing him. Even though he wasn't a quote unquote famous person, but his essence and his his spirit were loomed larger than life, at least to you and probably to a lot of people who saw the film. But my question to you is, how did did that type of a personality get along with your mother, who seems, just from your description, to be quite the opposite of that? Well, I think that that aspect of him probably made her rather nervous. But, you know, let's say, let's see. She loved him dearly, and he was like a wild child. And so I think her love, and I think he, 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 she was probably the only person he ever let in like that. So her love was very um, calming, and you know it was a, a good cradle. They were good cradles for each other in some way. Because they were opposite, perhaps. They were opposite, and they were both, ironically enough, um, they were very supportive of each other because they gave each other enormous space. And it might not have been a. I mean, I remember screaming once, I never want to get married. I never want to be a mother like you. Um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I. she was totally loved having children, totally devoted to them, did whatever, whatever she thought was necessary you know she she was very she was a very very giving person and um but it might not have been the perfect modeling for marriage because i don't think they had a true in some way i'm not sure it was a true partnership but on the other hand what was really terrific is it supported the individualism of both of them oh, that you is know wonderful. they 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 were both you know, my father did what he wanted, and my mother did what she wanted. You know, my mother was a, led a very exceptional life and, and was devoted to a lot of public service in her own way and was, ironically, he, he was very working class, and my mother came from a very educated kind of aristocratic family. Um, and in that way, they were totally, total opposites. So. Right. And how did making the movie um, illuminate your relationship with your dad? What did you find out that 
that surprised you or intrigued you about about yourself or him from making the film? Well, I think to some extent it demystified him. Uh, and because the camera is like a microscope, it also put my own behavior under a microscope as well as it did his. So I got to see um, and really evaluate who I was in relationship to someone who was in some way very um, opinionated and judgmental and dominating and not at all supportive and not you know not really knowing how to love you know he Who never you really could, he never oh, your dad. my father my father my yeah he never kind of got like my father never understood what it meant to be a father to to me or to my brothers he just like never like he couldn't understand the concept of having a relationship with your children that was you, beyond basically him. i mean like once after about- my mother well, like my mother died at 23. I made this film at 24. And so right. I went and said to my father, let's go out to dinner. And he said, I can't go out to dinner with you. You're my daughter. Wow. Like he, he, like he didn't, you know, it just he didn't get what it, mean to, what it meant to be a dad. Right, right. He was too much of a free spirit, apparently. And, he, yeah, he just had no conception of, of like, it, what it meant to be. You know, that I was his daughter, not like a woman. I was his daughter, you know. Right. It's just very strange. Right. That's, yeah. that's, that's very interesting. And from making that movie, you moved into other areas. Did you do a lot of video work after that, some of your video work, or was that before you made the film? I um, did, let's say, I did a lot before. I did a lot after as well, um, experimenting with pushing the documentary form particularly in areas of portraiture. How do we know people? What do we know about them? I would do things like I would do a, a short film that was just a quickie, like a minute on sex power and creativity. I did a, a number of short films. Uh, a short film called Second Grade Dreams with second graders telling their dreams. Um, and then I did a film... I, I, as part of a film called Seven Women, Seven Sins, where seven women directors from around the world um, interpreted the seven deadly sins, I um, did a film on anger. And this was also before there was uh, really all this kind of uh, reality television, you know, these talk shows where people just get angry at each other. So... What I did is I put an ad in the Village Voice asking for angry people to respond. And um, it's it's a pretty interesting film and considered quite, um, what would I say? I, I, the Europeans said it was crazy and groundbreaking. <laughs> it, 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 the, the film was produced originally by ZDF German TB. I said, only in New York can somebody make a film like this. And there was this was really before the template of Maury Povich and, and those kind of shows. Right. So, um, and it's quite an interesting film. It's actually a very interesting film. It was interesting to see who responded. You know, well, how many people? Uh, yeah. 
How many people actually responded to your ad? Uh, at least more than a hundred. Mm-hmm. More than a, maybe a couple hundred people over a week or two. It was like on the back page of the Village Voice. Right. And did you and choose the every- angriest people or a cross section of people in different degrees of anger to be in the film? They were they were certainly a cross section. I mean, I wanted to look at what the sin of anger. I had to first of all decide what the sin of anger is because not all anger is sin. False. Absolutely. Right. So I had to decide. And I tried to interview the archbishop to say, what does it mean, the sin of anger? But I couldn't quite do that. I did interview, what's his name, Jackie Mason, who was a rabbi, to ask, because I thought if I was going to ask an archbishop, I should ask a rabbi. But he was rather useless. <laughs> um, right. Uh, um, so I figured that what was anger was really somebody who hurt someone else. So I had like a Wall, a Wall Street guy who showed up in a hood and and uh, an S&M outfit who enjoyed really doing S&M with women, and he talked about why, and uh, a painful story about a, uh, I guess it's like a hermaphrodite, and a couple that that were at each other's throats, but because of the real estate situation in New York, wouldn't move out between each other, you know, wouldn't move out from each other, sure. and they, they sure. talked about that. So it was, it was very interesting, very interesting. A murderer... A cop, uh, the eleventh highest decorated detective in the city of New York, who who was who who came out of um, a mafia family and and he's just out of out of central casting as a mafia. He actually ended up being in Goodfellas because he took a, a, another cop there for a casting call, and the FBI just thought he was working for the mafia and had a tap on him, and he just could not get over that, you know, because huh. to him wasn't yeah. It was a, anyway, it's fascinating. Very fascinating. So it is now. For those of our listeners who might want to um, see that, how could somebody get a hold of that film? Anger. Oh my God! I just don't even know anymore. Oh, I think it's distributed by Electronic Arts Centermix, EAI dot com, I believe, or dot org. Okay. Okay. I think that would be um, a place. I know that you've done some work in the Amazon, um, photographing various rituals with ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Um, could we talk about that a little? About how you got uh, how you got down to it was in Brazil, I take it. In Brazil, mm-hmm. how did that come about, um, and what was your experience with that? Well, I thought um, so. This is a this is a for people who don't know. It's a, really there's a plant medicine. I mean, it's extraordinary that in the um, in the Amazon out of all the hundreds of species that a leaf of one plant and a vine of another, when they're brewed, when they're cooked in a particular way, become psychoactive. And for hundreds of years, thousands of years, the shaman of a tribe would drink this drink so that he could travel to the astral or travel, you know, to to have great sight so that he could see... Uh, where food might be if the tribe was hungry or where if a child was lost, where the child could be found in the jungle, uh, or to, to heal sick people. So it would give him access to information and you know knowledge that he normally, in this expanded consciousness, he, he wouldn't normally have, or she, mostly he. Um, and... Um, in Brazil in the 1930s, an Afro-Brazilian rubber tapper 
drank this drink with the um, native native people of Brazil and um, kind of received a download from the Divine Mother and the full moon. She appeared to him in the full moon, Pachamama, the queen of the forest, uh, a way in which uh, all people could become their own shaman. And this has huh. been the basis of... Um, uh, was, the, was the basis of really a doctrine, a kind of syncretic religion that combined Christianity and um, deities from the rainforest and, and from the Afro-Brazilian culture. And that there are a number of these kinds of churches that uh, drink this drink legally, protected by the government, uh, in churches and in the forest all over Brazil. And what fascinated me, I was introduced to this through a psychologist who um, discovered this when he worked for the government. Uh, he was in his in his 20s doing research in the Amazon, and he had heard that there was a uh, it was in the 70s, and that there were a group of people drinking this kind of drink. And he had heard about this in Machu Picchu when he thought it was some hippie community deep in the rainforest, and so he was shocked to find, no, it wasn't a hippie community. These were indigenous people who had been living there who were uh, um, couldn't read or write, who had never left the forest, who were living in a spiritual community. And he took this out to the cities in Brazil, he and a number of other people that then he, he brought into the forest. And what he discovered was that where psychotherapy or therapy or psychoanalysis could take a long time to really heal people of their everything from their neuroses to addictions to the issues that that people have that seek help that this was could be that the path, this evolutionary path was much faster and what interested me was that it, it was so it made so palpable the experience of the divine, um, and it and and the experiences one could have were so visceral and so life changing in such a quick way, uh, in such a democratic and quick way. Um, I found this to be quite fascinating, and was a window for people to have a greater idea of what's humanly possible. And beyond that this drink is actually something that is not legal in the United States and is not legal in many countries. It's legal in natural now legal A, let's see, in Spain and, and the Netherlands, um, actually the state of Oregon. There, there are a number of places where it is legal, but for the most part it's very misunderstood, and it's misunderstood because it's classified in the same drug category as uh, cocaine, and heroin, even though it's been known to cure people of heroin addiction and cocaine addiction, so that's what we set. That's what set me out on that course to make a film on the subject, which I'm in the process and of. Mm-hmm. Did you end up uh, trying the I, 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 the the actual drink yourself when you were there? When I was there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what was your experience mm-hmm. with it? Well, that that was true. I mean, I'm not going to make a film about something I don't totally understand because it's this is something that was 
you know, very difficult to understand. So, um, uh, and, yeah, it's a very, um, what I said appeared to me to be true, that it was a a very uh, fast evolutionary path that it it makes it makes you see yourself very clearly uh right. and in a way you're it allows for things that are not um in balance to kind of burn themselves off you know it's just it's so it's it it makes one's reality one's situation so extraordinary clear uh and and such deep healing, healing that's beyond what you think is possible can happen. I mean, really? I filmed a woman who had a huge a huge um, cancerous tumor on her neck the size of, like, a, a huge grapefruit. I mean, bigger than a grapefruit. And it was only healed with this drink. Did um, you have an experience in, in yourself? Rit- in, 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 in this kind of ritual. Did right. I have did an you experience? Have, did you have a healing experience yourself with it? Um, I did. I did. I did. Excellent. Um, Excellent. So, so I, I do think that. Um, yeah. So I. It, it is. It is. I, I have to say that it's not something for everyone. It's. It's a very. Uh, you can tell I'm talking about it with great caution because. Right. It's not something that's recreational. They call the work. They call the this spiritual gathering when they do it, and it's done in a very um, it's done in a kind of container in a context. And you know, the set and the setting of doing work like this is extremely important. And um, you don't it's not something it's called work. It's actually called the work because it's work. It's not recreational. Right. It's not intended to be. Uh, believe me, it's not what you would do to um, out of curiosity or to, like have a good time or to talk to other people. It's it's something that goes on in a you know in a deeply interior Unfor- way. Yeah, unfortunately, I I wish we had more time, um, Maxie. Perhaps you could come back another time. Um, we have we're running out of time. I want to thank you for being our guest on Monogy Life. This is Robert Fisher with my guest Maxie Cohn. Thanks so much for being our guest, and thanks to our listeners. Thank you. You've been, li- you've been listening to Monergy Life. Good night, everybody. Thank you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.